Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Tuesday, April 7th. And today, our main content is almost a follow-up to an interview from a few weeks ago. Those of you who are listening then remember I had Ben Hunt on to talk about narrative dislocation in the markets, right? And this was at a point at which the markets had only just begun to grapple with the potential implications of COVID-19. It was pre-shutdown, so a very different world, right? This was the before, in the before, after that I believe that we're going to have when all of this is resolved, or at least through this first phase. Now, part of what's changed is that over the last couple days, markets have been absolutely surging. The Dow was up something like 7% yesterday and is up 3% at the time that I'm recording this again today. And I think it's really interesting just how disparate the opinions on this are. So last night, I tweeted out markets are A, correctly reacting to positive signals around a potentially flattened curve, B, in denial about continued economic pain, or C, something else. There were some who thought it was A, right? We have the beginning embers of good news. It seems that New York's curve is flattening, and that has obviously been the epicenter of the outbreak in the US. It seems like some of the curves in Europe may also be flattening. So perhaps it is A, the market was incredibly fearful before and is returning to form. Now, what would make this make sense is that all of the stimulus that happened didn't really have an immediate impact on the markets the days that it was announced, largely because it seemed that without assuredness that these lockdowns would end, that the the economy would return to normal, there wasn't going to be that ability or that willingness to come bring money back into the markets. The reason that a flattened curve matters so much is that it provides that light on the horizon, right? Now, I think that there's a counterargument which comes to be, which is in denial of continued economic pain. Scott Melker yesterday tweeted, the stock market is not the economy. Obviously, for those of you who have listened to this podcast before, know that I agree with that statement wholeheartedly. We're seeing, I still think, perhaps a little irrational exuberance, a, a belief that there is a on switch where all of a sudden the economy can just go back to normal. Versus, you know, another month of people being out of work, more businesses shut down because of that and not going to just turn back on when it happens, and a fundamentally transformed landscape even when we do come back because we haven't yet dealt with just how difficult and staggered it's going to be, right? It's not inconceivable that we see a scenario where many types of activities, large gatherings, sports, you name it, are still prohibited where entire demographic sectors of the population are not allowed to work, where there are extremely stringent testing measures and weird new sort of controls that we didn't have before. So I don't believe that there's really an, an on in the same way that Wall Street seems to hope there is. So I'm a little bit more in the B camp. Uh, my guest Ben is today as well. But I, you know, I'm open to being wrong, which is why I asked the question. Now, the C, the open-ended option, A few different people had a few different answers. One that I thought was interesting came from Jeff Dorman from ARCA, who basically said that, look, the stimulus was doing what it was meant to do. It was absolving liquidity concerns, it was getting money into distressed hands, and it was restoring confidence in the market. 
he wasn't denying necessarily the downside and second order effects of what the stimulus might be and the relevance of that for crypto. He was basically just arguing that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, and that's what we're seeing in the market. So there's a lot of interpretation around this, obviously, a lot of good debate to be had. And certainly, I never want to be in a position of rooting for disaster because that's uh, the perspective that I take. I'm fearful that we still have more pain that's not really being priced in. But then again, we are in such fundamentally new times that it may just be that no one has any damn idea how to price things in. The reason that this all matters is that it's context for why I bring really smart people with different perspectives onto the show. For those of you who listened to Ben Hunt the first time, you know he comes from a markets background, but also a political science background. He thinks in terms of narratives and how narratives shift. And he has a really great perspective on this, even an emerging patternicity around these kind of bear market rallies, which is what he argues this is. So I think it's worth listening to this and really trying to grok and see what he has to say. And now there's one other important part of why I wanted to have Ben on the show today. Ben has been basically helping organize a citizen network to get PPE into the hands of medical professionals in an interesting way that doesn't actually compromise the ability of states and consortiums of states to negotiate directly with suppliers. Effectively, they use this network of actual people who are on the ground in China who have access to retail PPE effectively to buy it and ship it back to the US, where it's distributed not in hospital-sized chunks, but in department-sized chunks of 50 or 100 or 200 at a time. So it's a really cool example of, I think, one of the best things which is coming out of this, which is the resilience and the spirit of people around the world to come together, not wait for answers, not wait for governments to solve their problems, and actually do things important. So I hope you enjoy this little, it's almost a, an interview recap, right? It kind of pairs with the first episode from a couple of weeks ago. So uh, without any further ado, let's dive in. All right, we are back with Ben Hunt. Ben, thanks for joining again. Great to be here. Appreciate you having me. We were uh, we were just talking that, you know, this is, I feel like everyone has relearned the Lenin quote, you know, there are weeks that go by and decades and decades that go by and weeks yep. or whatever, whatever yep. version of yep. it you want to yep. grab, right? And it's, uh, it absolutely feels like that. The last time you were here, we were talking about basically how we still hadn't recognized the severity of this thing, mm -hmm. that markets had only just started to move. Uh, we were still in the, it's just the flu stage. We haven't even gotten to the, only the old stage yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, here we are in a, a very different place now. Um, I, I wanted to see how, uh, you know, your, your take on how things have evolved since then, or maybe, maybe better, because that's a huge question, where we are right now in the narrative cycle you know, of, uh, of this crisis. Um, and, and then I want to come back to the, uh, the, this idea of it being our finest hour. Um, cause it's something that, uh, I've really been admiring from afar what you've been building. Thanks, Nate. I, you, you know, I, I think you and most of your listeners are, are familiar with those Kubler-Ross stages of, uh, dealing with, with loss, <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with, 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 with death in particular. And, so I, I think it's very fair to say that the that the markets right now are uh, you know we've 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 moved past the denial stage, uh, but we're still very much in the bargaining stage. And what I mean by that is that it's happening in, in terms of a, of an economic shutdown and the 
you know, enormous uh, market impact of that, I, I think, entirely necessary uh, and appropriate uh, public policy to, to, to deal with a disease that's, or a virus that is two to three times more contagious and 10 to 20 times uh, more dangerous, more fatal than the seasonal flu. Uh, so we've, we've recognized that, that something big has to be done. And now the bargaining is, uh, well, well, how long does this have to go on for? So w- what I would tell you just from a, a narrative perspective, that's what you know, we see dominating the, the the unstructured data, the messages that that we are immersed in, both as citizens as and as investors. It's a it's a bargaining stage of okay. I know this is going to be really painful, but it doesn't have to go on too much longer, does it? Does it really? <laughs> right? And the and the the, the hallmarks of that are, it, and I'll make some comparisons to the the two thousand and eight. Uh, great financial crisis. The the hallmarks of that are going to be these three day rallies, where uh, you'll get a, a a spurt of good news. You'll get some missionary, as we like to call them, uh, you know, presenting a message that, all right, the you know it's green shoots or it's uh, you know the second derivative. Things are still getting worse, but not getting worse as badly or as ferociously as they were before, you know, whatever that, that, that message is. And, and you'll get, you know, these things always take three days. It, it's always a three day uh, bear market rally. And, you know, that's, that's very much par for the course. So it is just one of the stages though, of, of, of dealing with loss. And this is a great loss for any investor frankly, any citizen, uh, the, the trauma we're going through dealing with this virus and the, and the disease that comes from it. Uh, but right now we're in the bargaining phase. We're, we're a long way from acceptance. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. You guys had a great note last week, uh, noticing something that I was noticing and getting very nervous about as well, where there was an attempt to basically politicize health outcomes on the one hand and economic outcomes on the other, as though they were, uh, as though they could be easily split into a kind of left right right divide and just mapped cleanly onto that. And, uh, you know, that that's terrifying to me. It's also just insane. Like the, the, the idea that these are somehow mutually exclusive possibilities that are independent variables, right? It is just nuts. And it, it does feel to me a little bit like mostly because the leadership has backed off that message. Uh, it, it felt like that went away a little bit once Trump actually said that this is going to go through April, once he backed it, off. It, it did. Thing. It did. It absolutely did. And and, and look, I want to be very clear. I mean, look, I, I've written pretty widely about my views on the current occupant of the white house uh and they're and they're they're not favorable at all that said i i i <laughs> winston churchill once once wrote that if hitler invaded hell he'd find something good to say about the devil uh in the house of commons and so what i want to say is that this virus and this disease, this is, this is our Hitler. This is our world war. And, uh, you, you know, I, 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 I think 
Donald Trump is a disaster as a president. Uh, but what I also think is that his initial, I'll call it come to Jesus moment uh, about a month ago uh, in, the, in, in early March was uh, uh, a sea change in his attitude. He still tries to minimize this, and and, and I think it's uh, um, injurious to our policy the the attitude that he's taking. But I am I am relieved and frankly thankful that we are pursuing a nationwide essential lockdown uh, through this month. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely again the necessary and the and, and the right policy to take. So I'll say that. But 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 your larger point about this supposed trade-off between economics and uh, uh, death, right? And that and that we should run this essentially like an experiment. You know, you know. Well, the odds are, you know, it'll only be the olds, and so you know, why wouldn't we keep the economy open like this? It's it's reflective of a type of decision making that we're all familiar with, and, and frankly, in most circumstances, is the, the the right format for decision making. It's an expected utility framework. It's playing the odds. It's trying to to understand. All right, and I take this action. What are the possible outcomes? What are the odds of that outcome? And so, you know, let's measure right the 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 the, the relative pros and cons of this outcome with the odds of it coming to pass. And then let's do the one that has the, our, our maximum utility. And that's appropriate for so many things in life. It certainly is appropriate for investing. It's appropriate for gambling. It's appropriate for really anything where, I'll use the gambling analogy here, where we're going to be dealt a lot of hands, right? Where Where we can sit down to play blackjack and the odds will even out in a predictable way because we're going to play, we're going to sit down and we're going to play for a while. But the decision-making around a single event, whether it's fighting a war, and the decision-making theory I'm going to talk about really plays out um, you know, most prominently in defense planning and uh, war fighting strategy. Uh, but when you're only getting one roll of the dice – for a very risky thing, uh, that 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 utility maximization framework really falls down. Because, you know, again, I'll use a poker analogy. If 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 I'm just going to play one hand of poker for the rest of my life, if I'm unlucky, if I get hit hit with a bad beat, even though I was playing the odds, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm wiped out, and I don't have an opportunity yet to ever recover from that. It is the same thing when we're talking about an event like fighting a pandemic or, or fighting a war against anything. We've only got one shot at this. And so the utility maximization decision-making approach, which is really underpinning all of this notion of trade-offs between the economics and the lives of, of our fellow citizens, it's really misplaced. Fortunately, there's another decision-making approach. It's called mini-max regret, to minimize your maximum regret, which is really designed for these situations where, you know, you only get one roll of the dice here. You're only dealt one one hand uh, at the table. 
And so it's not really a matter of probabilities and odds. It's, it's a matter of minimizing your maximum regret. And in this case, I think the maximum regret is pretty clear. I, I don't want to lose my mother. I, I don't want to die myself. I, I, I don't want to lose any of those people that are closest to us, to me. And I have empathy for the other families and in our country and the world, frankly. And when you look at it in that perspective, I, I think it's very clear what we need to do. One, we need to protect our healthcare workers uh, because uh, the the common denominator of all of the worst case scenarios is when our, our healthcare system fails. And second, we need to develop really ubiquitous and quick testing so that we can have confidence that when we do go back to work and in crowds or in areas where with other people, we can have confidence that the contagious do not walk among us. And until we have those two sine qua nones in place, protecting our healthcare professionals, having ubiquitous and quick testing for all, you know, we've got to lock this down. Uh, so I, I, I think that when you approach it with that minimax regret decision-making approach, it, it really leads to a, a moment of clarity, right, in, in what our national policy can be. And for the most part, there are important exceptions here, but for the most part, I think that's the course of action we're pursuing. You know, it's interesting listening to you describe this. Uh, you know, you started saying we've we've moved from denial to bargaining, but in a weird way, I, I almost feel that there is a new type of denial that there's some normal to go back to, mm. right? That there's a, a switch that gets flipped, and it feels to me like we're losing time having the conversation about exactly what you just described, which is here's how we turn things back on, even though it's going to look very different than just a clean we're reopened for business, because we're spending we we've spent now the last couple of weeks debating when when we can flip the on switch without even realizing that there is no on switch so it's just a, a, interesting uh to think of that way well, look, um, what you're, okay what so you're I, describing really are the second order effects of and third order effects of this um, attack we've suffered from the virus and you know i'll flip it back to the great financial crisis and what happened you know in 2008 you know, going into 2008, the, you know, one of the largest asset classes in the world uh, was uh, non-conforming, meaning it, it wasn't done through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, uh, residential mortgage-backed securities. So these were the Alt-A loans. These were the uh, subprime loans. These are the jumbo loans. These are all of the mortgages that were then packages and resold as securities. This was a $10 trillion asset class, $10 trillion asset class going into 2008. And in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, that went away, right? I, I mean, look, we, we, we still have some, you know, jumbo mortgages out there and some of them still get packaged into securities and, and, and the like, but this was one of the largest asset classes in the world and it all went away. 
So you're absolutely right that there, there, there's so much of our world, not just investing aspects of our world, that existed pre-COVID-19 that are going to be permanently changed post-COVID-19. Everything from sports, right? I mean, I mean, this is the one that, you know, I was, I was pretty early talking about this and, and I, I got a lot of negative feedback on this, but privately, you know, I was sharing this with some of the, the NBA general managers and the, you know, the NFL Players Association. They were thinking about this pretty early on as well. What, what does it look like when we can't have stadiums and, and uh, coliseums and sports the way we have in the past. Because I'll tell you right now, social distancing isn't going to work from an economic perspective. <laughs> if you, you know, own, uh, you know, staple, the Staples Center in, uh, in, in, in L.A., uh, there, there are so many aspects of our lives and, and again, you know, our investment lives just kind of start scratching the surface. But the, the way we live our lives is going to change so dramatically going forward. And you're right. That is something that I don't think people are really wrestling with right now. Have you seen the um, uh, there's a, a collaborative crowdsource document going around about second order effects coming out of COVID that it just started circulating end of last week. Um, actually had Emerson Sparks who started it on the show yesterday. Uh, and uh, it's really interesting because he, he basically, he was, he sat down for himself because he started thinking through all these second order effects. He was like, there's got to be more. So he just threw it to a friend and then they put it online. And now there's uh, at any given time, hundreds of people contributing to it, but it's fascinating. Oh my God. No, I'm not familiar with that. I can't wait to dig in. That, that sounds fantastic. Um, okay, so uh, I do want to come back to um, Frontline Heroes in our finest hour. That's where I, where I want to end and what the whole intention of this was. But I do want to uh, have one more one more quick detour uh, into uh, perhaps uh, less less fun <laughs> topics. Um, so you've recently switched catchphrases uh, for, for a certain type of person. Uh, it used to be they're not even pretending anymore. Now it's burn it the fuck yeah. down. So I'm guessing that you, uh, and let me ask it this way, is what we've seen from uh, from kind of the, the, the bailout perspective, the stimulus perspective, just, was it just completely predictable? I mean, is there anything that surprised you, I guess, is, is a better way to put it? Surprise, no. I think it's still early to tell, too early to tell what the, what our, response is going to be to all of this uh, as citizens. And what I mean by that, you know, why does it not, you know, does it surprise me that the raccoons, as I like to call them, are out in force to, you know, to, to, to get their share of the, you know, the good tasty food that's being thrown, you know, out for, for, for all to enjoy? No, no. Uh, but, what I'm struck by is that we have the opportunity, I think, to A, recognize that all of our institutions have failed us in this crisis. They've all failed us. And this isn't a left-right thing. This isn't a Democrat-Republican thing. This isn't a even a boomer-millennial thing. This is... 
this is all of our institutions have have not just disappointed, they failed. And and so what do we do about that? Do we put it on a dimension of, oh well, if you know, we either vote Trump out or vote Trump back in, that fixes it. It goes so much deeper than that. And and it's what I'm hopeful is that for all of us and everyone listening to this podcast, our reaction to this crisis is that our political participation increases by an order of magnitude. And the smallest, itsiest, bitsiest piece of our political participation is who we vote for, which party we vote for, right? If you think that's the extent of your political participation or the, the or what your political participation can be, you've been co-opted by the institutions that have failed us. And so I, I think there's going to be a real opportunity coming out of this to forgive, yes, in some circumstances, but never to forget and to increase our political participation and make for real change in the way our institutions are structured, not at the surface level, not on, oh, did we vote for, you know, Coke or Pepsi, but to to really change the way we think about what it means to govern and be governed. So that's my hope. That's what I'll continue to try to write about. And uh, that's what I, 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 I hope that we all really wrestle with coming out of this. You know, it's it's funny actually. There's these two uh, almost completely opposite forces happening simultaneously. On the one hand, we're seeing this need uh, among uh, the business community, uh, the financial community, um, and certainly people who are you know uh, out of work because we're asking them to stay home uh, for the government to backstop everything. But at the same time. We're seeing, uh, you know, a characteristic, I think, in many ways, surge of people saying, "I'm not going to wait to take action, and I'm going to figure out what I can do about this." You know, what is the the resource that I have, whether it's someone I know or something I can organize, or what is the, you know, what's my little piece of uh, of audience and attention that I can throw to this, right? And so you're seeing a, a massive mobilization at the same time as you could have everyone just expect that they're, you know, now dependents of the state, basically, and that's not what we're seeing, no, right? What we're seeing is 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 mass scale, uh, a, a resurgence of citizen action, uncoordinated, messy all over the place, but but moving, right? And uh, and figuring it out as we go, which brings us to uh, the point. So you have made an argument that there is good to come out of this. I want uh, you to share with our listeners, um, specifically frontline heroes and what you've been doing around, uh, around healthcare workers and getting PPE to healthcare workers. Sure. Uh- you know, I, I, I do think that it's important, first of all, not to compete with uh, our emergency authorities at the gov- at the federal or state levels and in making these massive purchases of PPE. So I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to get out there and try to bid on a million masks or the like. But I also think as important as it is not to compete with the necessary work of these emergency authorities. I also think it's so important not to wait 
on these emergency authorities to do these massive purchases and then trickle it down into the hands of the frontline soldiers, because that's who they are in fighting this war against the virus, we can help. And by we, I, I, I mean everyone. And, and the way to do this, I, I, I'm convinced, is in a decentralized, in a bottom-up fashion. So the way we've approached it is to work with uh, different different groups. So for example, the employees of uh, Intel in China are buying equipment, masks in particular, uh, in China where it's plentiful and cheap, shipping it over here to, to, to us in Connecticut and other places where we repackage it. Uh, we pay for it. You know, we, 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 we reimburse them for, for, for what they spend out of their own pocket. And then we uh, repackage it and we ship it directly to doctors, nurses, uh, EMTs, first responders. Uh, we're trying to source, pay for, and then distribute down to the last mile medical supplies. You know, we're, we're not ever going to be able to do ventilators and, you know, we're not going to get into test kits and, and the like, but a mask? An isolation gown? Hell yeah, we can do that. Hell yeah, we can. And so it's it's a matter of connecting with well-meaning people all over the world to participate in this sort of effort. And, and, it, and it doesn't require a lot of work. You know, we found a, an organization where we're able to set up a 501c3 to take in donations. I say we've, we've we found uh, partners on the ground in China and Singapore and all over the place to source the PPE. And then we ship it over here and, and we've got a, a, you know, we've got a form online where we ask for those frontline heroes, and that's what they are, who are dealing with this virus every day to let us know, do you have an urgent need for masks, for gowns? And by God, we'll get them to you uh, at, at no cost to the recipient. So that's the, the project. We call it Frontline Heroes. Uh, if you're, you're interested in making a donation, it's frontlineheroesusa.org. So all one word, frontlineheroesusa.org. Uh, you can go to the Epsilon Theory site uh, if you are or you know of a doctor, a nurse, a clinician. You know, th these aren't orders of, we're not going to get 50,000 masks to a person, but we can get 50 and 100 masks, 200 masks to a clinic, to, to a department there on the front lines uh, to, to, to help them out. So... Um, yeah, that's what we're doing, Nate. And, you know, so far we've raised a little over half a million dollars. We've got a pipeline that we receive about 2,000 masks a day that we get out in, you know, batches of 50 and 100 to those frontline heroes. It's it's really happening, man. And And it is just, I can't tell you how gratifying it is to work with so many other uh, human beings who still have empathy in this world and, and, and still are committed to doing something. So um, that's what we're doing.
It's all bottom up. It's all grassroots. And that's how real change happens, Nate. It never happens from the top down. It always happens from the bottom up. And I think we're just getting started. I think uh, I think so too, and you know, for me, part of why I want to make sure to highlight these things is it's it's so easy right now to get lost in in uh, in frustration, in anger. Um, it's so hard to living with fear. I, I often feel that fear is a much more complex and uncomfortable emotion than anger. And so as soon as it can turn into anger, it does. And uh, and I think it's really important to highlight these things, right? Like no, no one effort like this is going to uh, fix the problem, quote unquote, because it's a, an infinite number of little problems together, right? But people still have to go live and do this thing and you know we've you know I'm in New York state we've had something like 22,000 uh healthcare workers from around the country get in their cars and drive here from from all over amazing. you know like that's that's amazing so uh I really appreciate what what you're doing and what the whole community is doing and I think uh you know uh, the the thing that is making me most inspired and optimistic is all of these pockets of little groups right the fact that that it is uh it's exceptional but not unique uh, that that it's giving me a lot of confidence right now. Well put, brother. Well put. Exceptional, but not unique. And uh, look, there 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 will be time for the righteous anger. There 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 will be time for that. Uh, right now, the time is to save our our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and daughters and sons. Uh, uh, we we can do this. We really can. And we'll come out the other side and then we'll get cracking on, on, on building a better world. Love it. Well, thank you again, Ben, for taking a little time to hang out with us again My today. My pleasure, Nate. Anytime. So just to quickly wrap up, I really want to hammer this interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, the context for people being more resolved to the government solving their problems has never been higher. We have come so full circle from the beginning of 2008 where businesses are just going to expect, I think, from here on out, or at least this is the fear, that if they perform badly, the government will bail them out. This is the precedent that we're setting. Now, individuals are also getting those bailouts, but they're basically being paid, or I think you could argue that they're being paid to voluntarily stay home. There is an economic trade-off here where they're being asked to participate in a public health outcome outside of their own ability to determine risk for themselves because it's important to the collective and are being backstopped, right? But either way, whatever your interpretation of it is, whether you think bailouts are right or wrong, there is no doubt that the time has never been higher in terms of the the potentiality of people just opting out and assuming that the government is just going to do things for them. But we're also seeing, or what we're actually seeing, I believe, at least in the citizen community, is the exact opposite reaction, where people are organizing, they're mobilizing, they're figuring out what they can do to help. They're using whatever resources they have, whatever attention they command, whatever little slice of the world is theirs to actually try to do some good for people. You're seeing it over and over. I can count a million different ways. And you know, Ben's Frontline Heroes Initiative is a great example of that. But as we said in the episode, it is exceptional but not unique. And not only is it not unique, these exceptional examples are plentiful. So, you know, yesterday Emerson Sparks was on to talk about the optimistic side of second order effects coming out of the coronavirus. 
I think one of them is just a return and a rise of citizen agency and citizen action and not waiting for people to solve problems for us. And if that comes out of it, it would be one good thing among so much bad. So I hope you enjoy this episode and this interview. I will be back tomorrow with another episode of The Breakdown. Until then, stay safe and take care of each other, guys. Peace.